Hello, and welcome to the 5 by your Quattro weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. I'm one of your hosts, Justin Bell, and in this episode, Geraldine gets competitive in her review of Race to the Raft. Aaron shows off his business sense with a discussion of Artifacts Incorporated. Meeple Lady brings back the hits with Revive, and I'll share my thoughts on the exceptional hand management and tableau building game Inheritors. But first, let's get energized by Jose's review of Power Rangers Deck Building Game. Okay, everyone. It's time for another episode of Jose Talks About a Deck Builder, even though he says he doesn't like them. And this time we're actually going to go through memory lane with me as we talk about the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I think that was the theme song, right? That's what it was? Anyway. We're going to be looking at the two to four player game Power Rangers the Deck Builder game designed by Matt Hira and Dan Blanchett and published by Renegade Games. So before we start, I do want to clarify that I'm going to be focused on the first core box, the Mighty Morphin Ranger set, and not the other core box, the Zeo set. But I'll talk about that in a second as well. So the Power Rangers the Deck Building game is actually a team game. It's 1v1 or 2v2. You can't play 1v2 for three players, but you're basically, one person's going to be double-handed. You choose your side. Pick your characters in your setup of the game. Most of the setup is going to be pretty familiar if you've played deck building games like Ascension or the Star Wars deck builder or Star Realms. Central market of cards that has cards for everyone. Everyone starts with their deck of 10 cards. Pretty straightforward. Over the course of the game, you're going to play cards either as currency to buy cards for yourself or the other currency to destroy opponent's cards. You can play cards to your character that will make them stronger over the course of the game, or you can activate cards that have already been attached to your character. The flow of the game is pretty straightforward, and they didn't do anything out of the box in this case, but this is where some of the small changes they make is, makes this game a little bit more interesting. So I mentioned before that there's the grid, the shared market in the middle. Now, just because there's a shared market in the middle doesn't mean that you have access to all the cards. There's cards specifically for one side or the other. But if these cards do come out, that doesn't mean that you're SOL and you have no recourse to interacting with these cards. You can use one of the currencies, which are card shards, to destroy your opponent's cards. Now, this does a couple of different things. First off, it denies your opponent the ability to buy these cards and put them into their deck. Ouch. Also, if we destroy a card, you get a reward for doing so. Fantastic. Now, here's the fun part. At the end of your turn, you're supposed to look at the shared market, look at the grid, and for every card on your opponent's side that's still in the grid, you're going to take damage. So this game really incentivizes you going after all these cards, you taking new cards into your deck, and not letting that market stagnate like some other deck builders may do. Now, I'm not going to break down all the rules for this game because this game actually has more going on than you would expect. Characters have asymmetrical powers. Cards are double-sided. You start off as a teen with attitude in the game, and then you morph into a ranger. You start off as a villain just scheming to make plans, and then you get empowered by Rita, and you get become stronger, and things become easier for you to do. Rangers have the dinosaurs. Yes, the dinosaurs are in the game. While villains have the master cards, which are all those crazy bad guys that you remember, like Eye Guy, or that weird pollution unicorn, or that giant crab man. That was the thing. He was, he terrified me. Giant crabs are scary. Now, the reason I don't like most deck builders is because you end up feeling like you're doing math homework the most of the time. You, you take your turn and you draw cards and you get plus one to attack and you do X amount of damage and you just really kind of feel like you're just doing math to draw more cards. 
It doesn't really feel like you're doing anything. But this game, to me, feels like an episode of the show. You start off as a, as a teenager, or you start off as a scheming bad guy, and you start doing small things, and you get stronger and stronger, and things start to escalate. The teens morph, and then they call in the Zords, and then the villains slowly start building up their rogues gallery, and they're wrecking havoc on Angel Grove, up until the very end, where the rangers are able to call in the Megazord, and it turns into the last final battle. It feels like the show and it's so much fun now speaking of feel i appreciate that they use the artwork from the comic book instead of stills from the show the art is fantastic and it helps keeps the game consistent across all the different ranger eras you can mix and match speaking of the different ranger eras as of right now there's two core boxes there's the morphin set which i'm talking about now and the zeo set there's also expansions for spd the shattered dimensions expansion i think just came out and I want to say there's another one, but I can't remember exactly which era of Rangers that one is. Now, my biggest gripe with the game, this core box can kind of go a little long in the tooth because there's a lot of defensive cards, so it's really easy for attacks to go off, and then you just end up blocking it, or your opponent blocks it for you, and kind of makes the game drag at times. Now, I've heard that the Zeo set really remedies this, and it becomes a much more aggressive game, but I haven't had a chance to play that one yet. Every box I've heard, every Ranger era plays a little bit differently. They all have their own specific Zords. And as you expand the game, you'll really start to see some of the nuance and the changes between the different eras. If you grew up with this show and enjoyed it like I did, this game is going to be a ton of fun for you. But the game is strong enough for it to stand on its own, even if you don't have the nostalgia for it. It's a really well-made deck builder. And actually, this game is what made me interested to see what else Renegade has done for all the other IPs that they've picked up and the other Ranger content which they made. And just a little side note, all the other Ranger games that they have made have been pretty good, but I'm going to talk about that later. So anyway, pick up that Morpher and let's go save the city. My name is Jose, and you can find me on Instagram at SirBearsworth and on Twitter at SirBearsworth1. Come on by, say hi, and let me know what you've been playing. From designer Frank West and published by the City of Games comes a unique cooperative experience for up to four players that is filled with puzzle goodness in the form of saving cats that were left behind on the Isle of Cats. Hi, my name is Geraldine with a guest contribution to the 5 by of a tile-laying, path-building, cooperative puzzle game in the aptly named title Race to the Raft. Draw path cards place fire tiles, and move cats away from the fire. Basically, right? Race to the Raft includes tutorials, practices, and scenarios ranging in difficulty from one paw to five paws. Each scenario has a unique island setup, including which cats to save and their starting locations, where fires originate, and specific objectives. You win by saving cats from the fire. And well, you lose by not and I guess the cats lose too. A hand consists of three cards from a player's choice of four different decks of pathway cards, and a turn can be either placing a path card and drawing and placing a random polyomino fire tile, or discarding a card to help cats move. Each cat is particular about what path it wants to take. For example, red cats need to travel down red forests and blue cats need to travel down water. This path preference, the random fire tiles, and path card placement all contribute to the puzzle aspect of Race to the Raft. 
Sometimes you need to save the blue cat first, and sometimes you need to save the blue cat fourth. Don't ask me why. You just do. And it's all in frustratingly good fun. To add even more to the uniqueness of this game, instead of the common player turn order, who goes next is up for discussion. Players share very vague descriptions of their path cards they hold in their hands. They could say they have a path that helps blue and green, but they don't reveal specifics of their path card, like if it has five blue spaces or three green spaces. Communication gets a little bit more limited with another twist that once the chosen player is about to take their turn, it's their turn alone, and all the other players can't talk until the chosen player completes their action. Unless the other players use special talk tokens, then they can't say anything to sway the chosen player from placing path cards or the fire tiles wherever they decide. And believe me, sometimes other players will want to insert their opinions. You can just see it on their faces. This happens a lot in cooperative games, but I think there's enough talking before any action that everyone can share a strategy and the next actions can be discussed together. I find that the lack of communication in the chosen player's turn keeps the game moving and minimizes the quarterbacking I see so often in other cooperative games. While this game plays for up to four players, it plays smoothly and quickly at two. Though I can see Wraiths to the Raft playing well with four players if there are kids or kids at heart involved. They'll likely find amusement in placing fire tokens, moving cats, and meowing. Yes, meowing. I won't spoil that for you. There's also a solo mode, which I am fully in support of. With the amount of scenarios that Race to the Raft comes with, and the availability of future seasonal scenarios on the publisher's website, I feel like we're just scratching the cat post surface of this game. The replayability of Race to the Wrath is definitely present. There's a lot to unpack, especially with the 81 different scenarios of varying difficulties. And since they're all unique, each play is different and will seemingly improve your strategy and keep you engaged as you play through the game. Actions are easily understandable that someone could just jump in without having to go through the tutorials. And it's even better if the player teaching the game has played through enough and is comfortable with the rules teach. There's also flexibility in choosing which scenarios to play, and you're not restricted to finishing specific scenarios before moving on to the next one. But Race to the Wrath isn't just for the casual cat lover. There's advanced scenarios for those who thrive in adversity, where it's not enough that blue simply just arrive. Instead, blue needs to arrive with orange, with purple, and with red. You can tell this game was carefully thought out to account for different levels and ages of players. Once again, my name is Geraldine, and I can be found on Instagram at to live and dice in LA, where I post my personal board game wins and losses, though I'm likely doing more losing than winning. Hashtag to live and lose in LA. Hello, hello, it's Aaron from GameWithUse.com here for the five by, and in this segment, I'm going to be reviewing. Artifacts Incorporated, or Inc., from Ryan Lockett. And if you're familiar with Ryan Lockett, then you know the illustrations and art were also made by 
Ryan Lockett. Artifacts Inc. was published by Red Raven Games in 2015. The location, New York City. The year, 1929. Apparently a frenzy of interest in antiquity is sweeping the nation, with museums hungry for mysterious and exotic artifacts, and you hunger for adventure. You start up with your own archaeology company. Untold wonders await within the dangerous jungles, harsh deserts, and windswept mountains. Will you gain a reputation as the most intrepid and famous adventurer in all time? That remains to be seen. So in other words, stealing was really popular at the time, and stealing and putting things on display was even more popular at the time. It belongs in the... It belongs where it is. So in Artifacts, Inc., which is playable from two to four players, players are going to be rolling dice, which represent a troop of adventurers, and placing them on cards in order to find artifacts. So Artifacts, Inc. is primarily a dice placement game. Artifacts, Inc. is a relatively small box, consisting of cards, four different color cubes representing each one of the four players, a small scoring slash reputation board with a diving section in the center of it. To the right of the reputation scoring board, there's going to be asset cards that if purchased enable players to have access to more dice on their turns. Beneath all that, you're going to have three rows of asset cards. So A assets, B assets, C assets. And these are the cards you're going to be buying to enable you to purchase more gems, scrolls, etc. Purchase a old-timey deep diving suit in order to unearth treasures and things deep down in the water. Each player is going to start off with four cards. Desert Expedition, Canyon Expedition, Headquarters, and Adventures. Adventures are the dice. And everybody starts off at level one on all of their cards. So the level one adventurer's card has three dice. So you start off with three dice, you roll those dice, and you're able to place them on Desert Expedition, which wants four or higher in order to find a scroll. The Canyon Expedition wants ones or pip values of three or higher to find a fossil. The Headquarters card allows you to buy things. Buying things means going into the A through E assets, because the assets that are to the right of the board are D and E. There's just two of them. Those just allow you to get more dice, which are very, very useful. So buying is important because buying allows you to get more cards. It also allows you to upgrade cards. So in the upper right corner of every card, including the ones you start off with, is a requirement. Most of them are just a dollar, but the Desert Exposition requires a scroll and a dollar. And upgrading a card means you just flip it over to the, its level two side. Its level two side is a little bit nicer. The level one Desert Exposition card means Fours and up means you can dig up a scroll. Level two allows you to use threes, fours, and up. As I said before, this is very much familiar feeling for a dice placement game. The more expensive cards are going to offer more reputation points, which you take immediately. So when you get a card, let's say you get the college level one card, which allows you to get one reputation per pottery that you have. You can get the pottery by diving down into the ocean. Cards that are sitting on top of the reputation board tracker allow you to use pit values of any dice in order to take the card on top, which is typically worth one reputation point, but also offers a finding. And those findings can be things like doubloons, a sunken city, or pottery. Through all the dice rolling and card purchasing and deep sea diving and collecting and selling to the museum, once somebody gets 20 reputation, the end of the game is triggered, and whoever has the most reputation wins the game. To be quite honest, I really don't remember what turned my attention to Artifacts Inc., I just recall hearing people talk about how much they liked it. I suspect a decent chunk of that was probably due to the fact that there's more game in the box than you might expect. It's not the smallest box, but it spreads out not like table hall wise, but 
there's a lot of game in, in for such a small box. I, I do have to say that. Um, also, it's Ryan Lockett. Visually, it's a nice looking game. It, it looks nice on a table. Um, it's not quite as colorful. A lot of browns and tans and things like that. But it is a nice looking game. If you like dice placement, it's a really fun game. Despite not necessarily reinventing the wheel. It can feel a little uneven if someone gets something like the deep dive suit, which really gives them an advantage for diving down and getting findings underwater and at least one reputation point just for getting that card. You can always counter that with maybe digging up more gems or digging up something else and selling a lot more things in the museum. I really didn't mention this. There's also a small bit of area control in the game because of the museums. When you're putting your wooden cubes on certain spots for selling a certain number of items to that museum, whoever has the most on that card gets additional points at the end of the game. The commentary about how museums acquire things and that kind of stuff is pretty well known at this point. So, hey, I'm being silly, but then again, I'm not being silly. All in all, I like Artifact Sync. I think if you like dice placement games, you should definitely give it a shot. Anyway, I've been Aaron, Aaron from GameWithDudes.com. Thank you for listening. And this has been my contribution to this episode of The Five Buy. One of my favorite board game mechanisms is when a game contains multi-use cards, meaning cards that can be used in different ways, either by playing it or tucking it, which then gives you a variable bonus, reward, or action. Multi-use cards increase the number of actions and decisions you can make in a game without expanding the game's footprint too much, which comes in handy when a game is already ginormous. Those cards offer a gaming experience somewhat unique to your opponents who probably played different cards than you did. And now throw in deck building, tech trees, and fantastic components, and you've got a game that I've enjoyed playing time and time again. That game, my friends, is Revive. Revive was published in 2022 by Aporta Games, and designed by Helge Meissner, Christian Amundsen Ontsby, Eliv Sevenson, and Anna Wormlin. Revive is set 5,000 years after the destruction of Earth, and tribes are now exploring the frozen Earth in order to repopulate it and survive. The game is for 1 to 4 players, with each tribe having its own asymmetrical powers. But first, a warning Revive is a table hog. It comes with a large game board, as well as player boards which then your tribe boards fit neatly next to it. The boards are all dual layer, which is great for a game that involves various machine tracks, resource tracks, and tribe abilities that you unlock like a tech tree. And that's just on your player board. The main board has locations for artifacts, as well as a hibernation track and a victory point track. The game also comes with a bunch of wooden pieces. Each player gets 20 discs, which cover up spots on your machine track, four markers to manage your machines, four markers to manage your resources, five small buildings, three large buildings, seven meeples, and two pawns, in addition to the six starting cards in your hand and the remaining citizen cards that can be acquired on future turns. The main board will also hold location tiles, area tiles, and starting tiles. There's also crates, cardboard slot modules, and a switch to place onto your player board, and wooden energy, which are shaped like lightning bolts. There's a lot of things. On your turn, you take two actions, or you hibernate. The two actions include play a card, use your switch action if available, explore, populate, or build. In addition to your main two actions, you can also do free actions, just trade crystals to other resources, activate machines, or open crates. Playing a card is where the multi-use cards come into play. 
On your player board, there are slots available at the top and bottom of the board, and one slot on the side you can unlock later in the game. When you play a card into the top slot, you tuck it into your board and receive the effects that are shown at the top of the card. If you can tuck multiple cards of the same color in the same slot, and you have a slot module of the matching color, you can activate all the cards that match. The same goes for tucking cards into the bottom. Effects include gaining resources, of which there are three basic ones, gears, books, and food, and there are also crystals which are wild. You can also trade three basic resources for a different one, advance on a machine track, take a slot module, or activate your tribe ability. The switch action allows you to gain one basic resource. Exploring allows you to turn over area tiles on the main board after paying the range and food from where you're situated. You then recruit a new citizen card to add to your deck. You also have to pay range when you populate and build, leaving a specific type of wooden piece from your player board. As you populate, you remove meeples from your tribal board, and it unlocks technologies in a tech tree fashion. Like for example, enabling you to tuck cards from the side of your player board and other abilities. If you decide to hibernate, you essentially reset your board and advancing your marker on the hibernation track. The goal of the game is explore new lands, build buildings, and populate locations on the main board. Certain actions also let you collect artifacts. The game ends when the last major artifact is collected from the board, and you then score points from collected artifacts, your artifact cards, which is an endgame objective, research technologies, your progress on the tracks, and your populated locations. The player with the most points wins the game. So yes, I spent a good chunk of this revive review with the really broad overview of the game components and the different actions because there is a lot and it can be overwhelming. But any semi-seasoned Eurogamer can immediately pick up on the game's mechanisms and it becomes just a matter of understanding how they all work together and optimizing your gameplay. What I love about revive is the comboing of actions, especially unlocking all the abilities as you advance on the machine tracks of which there are three and there's no way you can get to the end of all three. You have to prioritize which path to victory you want to go down, and there are for sure plenty. Revive is a fun and satisfying experience, especially since there are four to six different double-sided player boards you can choose from. The last two player boards unlock when you do the campaign game. And that's Revive! This is Meeple Lady for the Fiby. You can find me on all the socials as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Hey gang, Justin Bell here with the 5 by. I'm excited to talk to you today about Inheritors, the 2023 North Star Game Studios card game release designed by Jeffrey CCH and Kenneth YWN. North Star's team was kind enough to provide me with a review copy during a meeting at Gen Con in 2023. And I have to say that across four plays with 12 different people, the game has been an absolute smash. Now I'll admit that this is a surprise, in part because this is a card game that isn't a trick-taking game. It's a game with an excellent player aid, but a rule book that leaves a bit to be desired. And it's a game that has card stock that one player called cheap during our second play of this game but those quibbles melt away fast. Inheritors is a two to four player game that plays in about 30 minutes. It's easy to table because it doesn't require a lot of real estate. 
players take on the role of potential inheritors to the king's throne. Using a mix of spycraft, court lobbying, and gaining influence with other players, each person will try to score the most points by drafting cards from an open market, then building a small tableau aligned with the game's five suits by building cards in order from cards numbered one through six. This will account for a majority of the very low scores accumulated during each game. Now, inheritors can be pretty sneaky. And that's because racing to score points is challenged by the fact that other players may be holding cards that let them take a card from your hand. And sometimes they break some of the game's rules from time to time. Even if your neighbor robs a card during a later turn, you can still work around that by spending cards from hand to go on quests to secure a small number of endgame points. You've even got a little taste of Euro milestone fare here, with public scoring objectives that also provide a few endgame points. Now, that variability in quests and milestones continues, as Inheritors provides players with the ability to draft a player power mid-game, based on the investment in playing certain card suits into their respective tableaus. Some of these powers are a lot of fun, like the wolf, which changes the rules for the owner by allowing them to play not just one, but two of their influence cards to the tableau. These clan powers, as they're known, are on double-sided cards, with ten total options available during the game's setup. Across my four plays, scores of inheritors were always tight. In one of those games, the final score was 18, 17, 16, 15. In another, two players tied at 16, and we had to use the game's tiebreaker to decide the winner. Inheritors does what the best games do well, provide an environment for interesting choices, quick yet thinky turns, and a lot of tension. Games of Inheritors always wrap up in about 30 minutes, and for less than $20, the box offers a solid value proposition. During each of my games, someone has compared Inheritors to the Reiner Knizia classic Lost Cities. To me, Inheritors is better than Lost Cities, in part because the gameplay here is deeper and Inheritors plays two to four players, whereas Lost Cities only plays up to two. In that way, this replaces Lost Cities for me and a number of the friends in my gaming groups. Despite the production issues I mentioned earlier, Inheritors is a very easy recommendation. It doesn't blaze any new trails, but does provide a very interesting series of mechanisms for best managing a slowly shrinking hand of cards while trying to outrace opponents in low-scoring affairs. No one's ever out of it, and taking advantage of situational discards by opponents has led to lots of fun turns for the people in my groups. For more of my tabletop content, check out my profile at www.meeplemountain.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and threads at Justin Bell Says. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-B-E-L-L-S-A-Y-S. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and roll some dice. You've been listening to The Five By, your source for rapid-fire board game reviews. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Five By Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Support our Patreon at Five By Games. 
Listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit our website at 5bygames.com. Thanks for listening. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.